Rabbi Khan, our beloved Bill, fellow alcoholic, good many years ago, I had a rather heavy course in Hebrew, but I never learned Yiddish. Which reminds me that the statements by our chairman tonight have been so extravagant in presenting me that, frankly, I'm embarrassed. But maybe it's like this. Maybe I didn't understand exactly what he meant. A.B. Goldstein lost his wife. He loved her very dearly. And so in order to pay tribute to our memory, he went to the monument dealer in his town and said, I want the finest monument that money can buy. I want it eight feet long, three feet thick, and six feet high. And he said, I bought on the front of it the name Goldstein. And then right under the name Goldstein, I want you to put glass pants. The uh, monument maker said, how's that? He says, I want you to put under the Goldstein name glass pants. And the monument maker said, glass pants? He says, yeah, glass pants. Well, he said, if that's what you want, that's what you'll get. So the monument was completed, and A.B. Goldstein went out to the cemetery to see it. There it was, just as he ordered it. The name was exactly right, the size of it, the beauty of the stone, it was perfect. And there underneath the name of Goldstein was a little pair of glass pants. A.B. says, oh my God, what have you done? The monument maker said, I've done just exactly what you told me to do. No, no, he says, you didn't. I said, trash pants, trash pants. I think we all enjoyed that break a while ago. But uh, frankly, when it was first announced, I got a little bit uneasy after the rabbi showed his knife. <laughs> got along very well so far. <laughs> and hope to continue. <laughs> You notice that I said, my fellow alcoholic, a man who was timid as I am, was elected governor of one of our western states some years ago, and in making a tour to various state institutions, came one day to the state penitentiary. 
Of course, every public official has to do a great deal of speaking, but because of his stupidity, he tried to get out of it whenever opportunity afforded. And when the warden informed him that he should speak to the inmates of the penitentiary, he said, no, I, I don't think so. He said, I don't know what to say to these people. Well, the warden said, they are uh, men and women of our state who are in trouble. They have a right to know their governor. You can say something to them. So they were herded into the chapel of the penitentiary, and the warden introduced the governor. So arising, he said, ladies and gentlemen, and he thought, no, that wouldn't do. No ladies here, and these boys are not gentlemen, they wouldn't be here. So he started over again. He said, my fellow citizens, and he thought, that won't do, because their citizenship has been taken away. So he said, my dear friends, and he looked into those hardened faces, he thought, if I have a friend among them, I don't know it. So he thought he'd make one more desperate effort. He said, my fellow prisoners, I am indeed glad to see such a fine representation of our citizenship here within these walls. And I hope that on my next visit to this historical institution that I shall see a still larger number of our <laughs> I think this gathering tonight and for the next two days is perhaps the most outstanding AA meeting that I have ever had the privilege of attending. And I would like to express to you of the great state of Texas my sincerest congratulations for doing what Texas always does, a big thing in a big way. I am honored in being asked to speak to you tonight in speaking to you I shall necessarily have to be rather personal. I shall tell you a story first. I trust I shall not bore you. And what I shall say is said as humbly and as sincerely as I know how to say it. And the opinions that I express are my own. For as you well know, there is no final voice of authority in the fellowship of AA. I am an alcoholic. I am not ashamed of the fact that I am alcoholic. The only man or woman who needs be ashamed of the fact that they're alcoholic is that man or woman who, knowing that, and knowing that there is an answer to their problem, deliberately turn their backs upon it and walk the other way. <laughs> My story is not particularly unique, except in certain circumstances. I was reared in a Christian home. Very early, felt that I should enter the Christian ministry. I was very active in my church, my young people's activities. <coughs> And through fortunate circumstances, when I determined to enter the ministry at an early age, my education was planned along those lines, and through fortunate circumstances, 
I enjoyed a better than average education. There are a great many people who get the idea that alcoholics all come from the wrong side of the track. I happen to be one who did not. I get just a little weary sometimes with that type of piety where an individual looks down his or her nose and in a sanctimonious manner gives expression to something like this. Thank God I never touched a drop of the damnable stuff in all my life. <laughs> I would hate to think that anything would get such a hold on me that I couldn't quit it any time I did what he did it. <laughs> well, whether you believe it or not, my friend, there happens to be a group of people in this world of just that type. In order that you may know that I have seen both sides of this question, during my college days, the WCTU in our community promoted some declamatory and oratorical contests on the evils of beverage alcohol, offering a series of medals for the best speeches, the last medal being of solid gold with a diamond in the center of it. I entered five of those contests and won five of those medals, <laughs> and then some years later pawned them to buy a liquor with. <laughs> One day I found myself the minister of a large church in the city of New York. We had one of the most beautiful buildings in America, a membership of some 1,800, the usual city church staff, and everything that a minister could desire to make his work successful and enjoyable. Contrary to the generally accepted idea of the work of a clergyman, he does work sometime other than Sunday. Of course, I know that's a revelation to most of you. But the fact that we do not belong to the Union, that we do not punch a time clock, that we get no time and a half for overtime, the average clergyman who is on the job works not eight hours a day, but anywhere from ten to eighteen hours a day, and is on call twenty-four hours a day. <clears throat> I was only a little past thirty years of age when I assumed these responsibilities, and from what I've learned since, I'm confident that I was entirely too young. I took my responsibilities very seriously and consequently had a breakdown. When my physician put me in the hospital for a checkup, when he was ready to dismiss me, he said, you're just as sound as a dog. Nothing the matter with you, organically. He said, you need to take it a little easier. And he said, I want you to build yourself up. At that time, I weighed exactly 106 pounds. He said, you need no medication, but I'm going to give you a tonic. I want you to take this tonic three times a day. All right, doctor. He said, I want you to drink a milk punch. Now, I don't know whether you ever drank a milk punch or not, but to make a milk punch, you take an ordinary tumbler of whole milk, the cream in, a whole egg, a little sugar, some cracked ice, and about a jigger or a jigger and a half of whiskey or rum. 
You stir it all up together and it does make a very delicious and palatable drink. <laughs> I see some of you drooling right now. <laughs> this was during Prohibition, so I obtained a prescription and bought the liquor and started to follow the doctor's direction. From what I've learned about alcoholism since then, I am firmly convinced in my own mind at least that I was an alcoholic with the first drink. And if not an alcoholic, at least a potential alcoholic. For with true alcoholic reasoning, I thought if three would do me good, six would do me twice as much good. Alcoholics never do anything by half. And so before long, I was taking the milk punches oftener than the doctor had prescribed. And one day I went to the icebox to make my milk punch, and we were out of eggs. So I just used the milk, sugar, and whiskey, and the results were entirely satisfactory. <laughs> Another time I went to make my milk punch, and the milkman hadn't come. This time I used a very small portion of ice water, and a little bit of sugar, and a generous portion of whiskey. And bless your life, the results were so much better than they'd ever been before. But I decided it was a sin and a shame to deprive my wife and children of the milk and eggs when I did it all just as well enough. From my experience in dealing with alcoholics over a good many years, as well as my own personal experience, I have found very few alcoholics who are interested in mixed drinks. You know, the sissiest thing to an alcoholic that one can think of is for a stopping man to take a highball glass, drop in three ice cubes, put a half an inch of amber fluid in the bottom, and then pour in ginger ale or salsa water and stand around and suck on it for an hour. <laughs> now, who wants to drink like that? Why wait an hour or two hours to get a glow when you can get it in about 15 minutes? few people, except alcoholics, who can understand that story. Now, that's the way I started drinking, just as innocently and unintentionally as any man found himself eventually in any situation not of his own creation. There was no disposition whatsoever on my part to take over the traces and go out and raise hell or anything of the kind? Not by any means. This goes to prove one can never tell. Now imagine if you can a man situated in such a position. The minister of a great church, honored and loved and respected, not only in his own communion, but in the entire community and elsewhere. Drinking, knowing that he's drinking, knowing that it's contrary to everything that he has built into his character and into his life, and yet seemingly powerless to quit. I realized something had to be done about it. So I decided to quit. Well, you say, how did you quit? Well, I just quit. What do you think I am, a man or a worm? Don't you think I have no willpower? Don't you think I could do anything that I make up my mind to do? Don't you think I can take it or leave it? Because I always took it, but don't you think I can take it or leave it whenever I get ready? 
One day, by main strength and awkwardness, I quit and didn't drink a drop for two years. The incident was over. The chapter was closed. The story was ended and finished had been written at the end. However, I did have a brainstorm, which is also typically alcoholic. I decided it might be a good idea for me to leave New York. So I resigned the pastor of that church. Nobody knew anything about my drinking except just a few. There was no embarrassment about it. And I went to Atlanta, Georgia. I went there on a little visit. I arrived on a Friday, preached in one of its leading churches on Sunday, and stayed for three years. And the first two years I was there, I didn't drink a drop. The third year I was there, some problems of a purely personal nature arose. No great consequence. I started to drink at night. I suffered from insomnia. <coughs> I knew I could take a few drinks and relax and go to sleep. And so it started. <coughs> I rationalized, not only as alcoholics have rationalized, but all human beings have rationalized their problems and convinced myself that so long as I drank medicinally, no harm would be done. Had I not been given this medicine by a perfectly reputable physician? But this time it was another story. It became known that I was drinking, and I had to not only resign the pastorate of that church, but to withdraw from the ministry entirely. It was one of those situations, either get out on your, under your own power, or we'll throw you out on your ear. So I got out under my own power. I sent my family back to my wife's people because I could no longer support them. And I left the city of Atlanta a thoroughly discredited man, completely stripped of everything that a man tries to build into his character and into his life. Start naked so far as character was concerned. I went to Chicago. It was the first year that the World Fair opened in Chicago. Why I went, I hadn't the faintest idea except I had to go somewhere. And I had to get a job. I had to try to do something to support my family. The World Fair was opening, I might get a job there, pushing a chair or doing something around the fairground. And for five years, I lived in Chicago and drank as few men drink and live to tell the tale. During that time, I did everything that a man could do to earn a living. I sold life insurance. I sold from door to door. I sold advertising. I worked as a reporter on the Chicago Daily News. I wrote advertising. I worked as a janitor. I washed windows, scrubbed floors, painted furniture. I worked for the Mills Novelty Company, making these pinball game machines. By the way, I can tell you how to make one work every time. <laughs> All of it with one purpose and one purpose only in view. I worked to earn money, to buy liquor, to have the strength to work. To work, to earn money, to buy liquor, to have the strength to work, to earn money, to buy liquor. Silly, isn't it? But it's what we have come to know as the vicious circus. Most alcoholics that I have known have had a period in their drinking careers when they were what we term normal drinkers, when drinking to them was not a problem. But somewhere along the course of the years, they cross over an invisible barrier 
But nevertheless, a very real barrier, where forever after they are marked men and women, so far as alcohol is concerned. There comes a time in the alcoholic's life when, like the center pole of a circus tent that carries the major weight of the canvas, there stands at the center of the alcoholic's mind a bottle. And every dream, every concept of pleasure, every concept of living from day to day revolves around that bottle as the planets revolve around the sun. Imagine, if you can, a man who had been the honored guest in many of the pulpits of the great churches of Chicago, a guest in its finest hotels and clubs and homes, walking the streets of that great city, completely defeated and wrecked beyond all hope. But what is infinitely worse, walking the porches of the souls on sleeping midnight without a single star, solitary ray of light penetrating the gloom. My wife died from cancer of the breast. That only called for heavier drinking. My youngest son was killed in a horrible automobile accident on his way home from church. The steering post of the car run entirely through his body. That only called for more intensified drinking. And the merry-go-round rolled on. During the latter part of that period in Chicago, I married the very charming lady who honors me as my wife tonight. Why she married me at that time, God only knows. Since then, she's wondered a good many times herself. The only intelligent explanation that she has ever been able to give in regard to it was this. She did know me, B.A., before alcohol. And as she expressed it, she could not, could not help but feel that there in the dying embers on the altar of a man's soul, there might still be a tiny spark that could be kindled into a living flame. At any rate, we married. And I obtained a job traveling out west. There were periods of sobriety and periods of heavy drinking. We traveled by car, she traveled with me. What a wonderful thing it is to have a driver. Someone to make out your reports. There are a great many people who get the idea that a person isn't an alcoholic unless they're drunk all the time. Or, you know, even a feast has to come up for air. <laughs> but it was a pretty hectic sort of life. I shall never forget it. We came one day to a little town in Missouri Springfield to spend the night. We'd gone in, put on our pajamas, turned on the radio, had some magazines and papers. We're going to have a nice evening. While we were quietly sitting there, Francis turned to me and said, here's an article that I think you would enjoy reading. I said, all right, put it over there and I'll read it when I get a chance. No, she said, you sit down there, I want you to read it now. Don't tell me what to read. <laughs> you can't tell an alcoholic anything. Stubborn as a jackass in the barn lot. You may have heard of a clergyman sitting on a park bench in one of those little tiny parks in the city of New York. 
wearing his clericals and quietly reading a book and minding his own business. And this lush weaved down the path, sat down on the other end of the bench. You saw the clergyman sitting there. Why a drunk always talks when he shouldn't? I don't know. But he always does. I did too. He saw the clergyman sitting there, and he turned to him, and he said, I say that, I don't believe in heaven. The clergyman ignored him. Drunk waited a few minutes, he turned to him again, he said, I say, I don't believe in heaven. Still, the clergyman ignored him. That was too much for the drunk. He reached out with his finger and gave him a punch in the knee. He said, I say there, I don't believe in heaven. The clergyman very quietly lowered his book and looked at him, said, we'll go to hell. <laughs> Sometimes that's about the only thing that you can say we're drunk. And to be perfectly frank with you, and off the record, it's about the only thing that I've been able to say from board members of my church sometimes. I can find out all. Oh, she said, now you sit down there. This is something that you're going to like. You're going to be interested in, and I'll read it to you. I said, all right. Hey, just a minute. So I'm in the bathroom. I poured me a little sniffle, just about that much in a glass. I knew it was going to have hooks in it, and I had to fortify myself some way. So I came back in, and in my usual expensive manner, said I could all right deal, it's happy only The title of the article was God and Alcohol. Or something, that's not exactly the phrasing, but that's the substance of it. The last issue of September 1939 of Liberty Magazine. The first piece of publicity concerning Alcoholics Anonymous published in any national magazine. This was prior to the Jack Alexander article. When she had finished reading that article that night, I felt literally as if a bullet had struck me squarely between the eyes. And I turned to her and I said, let me see that. And I read it again. And then I turned to her and said, this is what I've been looking for. It was the story of very skimpy of the beginning of what has come to be known as the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. Here was a man who was not writing one of those sweet little essence of rose water temperance essays, but a man who had been through all the hell and the torture and the torment of alcoholism that I have been through although I didn't know it was alcoholism at that time. And I turned to her and I said, let's find out more about it. I don't know what type of temperance education you had when you were growing up, but I'm frank to tell you that my education in the field of temperance was a very poor education. Now, this is not meant to cast any aspersion upon any organization, or any individual, or any good-intentioned people who do the best they can with what they have, 
But I want to tell you a story that perhaps illustrates it better than anything else that I might say. Jerry, this sweet, good woman, bless her heart, who just wants to see all the people in the world do it. And sober, and then leave that terrible stuff alone. So she goes into the schoolhouse. And she's going to make a talk to the boys and girls about the evil of beverage alcohol. So she sets up two glasses, just like these. So she says, boys and girls, I want to show you the effect of beverage alcohol. Now she says, in this glass, I have pure water, just like God made. And in this glass, I have one other group alcohol, just like man made it. Now she said, watch boys and girls, and she reaches down in a purse, she pulls out a little box, takes the lid off, from the little box she takes out a good, big, long, slick, slimy, juicy, wiggly worm. Now she said, watch boys and girls, and she drops the little worm down in the glass of pure water, and the little worm just swings around and just has a perfectly grand time. Now she said, watch boys and girls, she reaches down, takes the worm out of the glass of water, Dropped it into the glass of 100 proof alcohol. The little worm makes two wiggles, stretches out perfectly straight, and turns to a one. Now she says, boy, good girl, what do you see that about you little brothers out there? One little fellow in the back raises a, oh, I didn't even have one of these If you take enough alcohol, you'll never have worms. <laughs> Because I had to find out for myself whether it was true or not. At any rate, I turned to Francis and said, let's find out more about this cockeyed thing. Alcohol is anonymous was so anonymous and so small at that time we couldn't find it. The big book. Alcoholics Anonymous was coming from the press in the first edition. There was a little handful in Akron, Ohio, and a few in Cleveland, a few in New York, and maybe a few started over in New Jersey. That was the extent of Alcoholics Anonymous. And we couldn't make any contact. We did try to get hold of a pamphlet. I don't know how. She got it. These women have a way of getting things, you know. She got a pamphlet, and eventually we got the big book. Well, I didn't read the big book because he went to sleep at night, but didn't want to give the satisfaction that I was that much interested in. <laughs> and the more I found out about this strange thing called AA, the more firmly convinced I was that I wanted it. Because I had long since come to the conclusion that so far as drinking was concerned, I was one of the most peculiar and unusual drinkers in all the world. But that's the extent of our knowledge of AA for quite a little while. But one day, I didn't stop drinking immediately. One day I said to her, if I ever get sober, if I ever get straightened out, I've got to go back to Atlanta and face the meeting. I do not know what your opinion may be, but mine is this. I believe, of course, the exceptions to all rules, I believe the best place for any man to get up is where he falls down. 
then he has nothing to live down. And I knew that if I ever solved my problem, I was going to have to go back to Atlanta where I'd fallen down and faced the misery. We set out to Atlanta without any job, without any money, without any hope to start over again. Through the kindness of my wife's parents, we had a little one-room kitchenette in their suburban home just outside of Atlanta. And we started the long trail back. I knew we were going to have to organize an AA group in Atlanta. I heard of a man out in West End, Atlanta, who had attended a meeting in New York, a former actor on the Broadway stage. I went out to see him. He said, yes, I'm very much interested in it. I'll help you get a group started. And he said, out in Buckhead, that's as far across town as you can go, in the other direction, there's a man out there who's attended a meeting in New York, and he will help us get a group started. So I went out there to see him, and he was enthusiastic about it. So I went back out to West End to tell that man that I'd seen the man in Buckhead and that we'd get together and have a meeting, when lo and behold, I found him just as drunk as a boy out. So I went back out to Buckhead to get him to come and help start a little practical AA work immediately, and lo and behold, he was drunk as a boy So then I got drunk too and just made it good. <laughs> that was the auspicious start about Alcoholics Anonymous in the Not long after that, a man came down to Atlanta from Washington, where a group was being started, who had gotten the AA bug. A man came to Washington General Hospital in the Army Medical Corps. He had a story in the paper one day, anyone interested in Alcoholics Anonymous write to a certain box in Atlanta. I said to my wife, says I, write the man. Alcoholics are the greatest executives in the world. Anything on earth can get somebody to do for them, they'll get them to do it. She wrote him, one night, strange to say, in that same community of Buckhead, in the basement of that army officer's home, with his furniture still in crate, his clothing and dishes in barrels, we sat on boxes with an old dilapidated briefcase, a copy of the big book, and one or two AA pamphlets, the real estate man, and this army officer and his wife, and your speaker tonight and his wife, held the first meeting of AA in the city of Atlanta, and I think practically in the southeastern part of the United States. From that humble beginning, you know the story of AA and its growth around the world, until tonight, there is hardly a hamlet of any size within the confines of this beloved land of ours that does not have an AA group or is within the reach of an AA group. Had I the time and you the patience to listen, I could tell you stories by the hour of men and women that I know personally who have been completely rehabilitated through that group as they have through your group here and the one in Dallas and Austin, and Waco, and San Antonio, and Galveston, and Houston, and everywhere in Texas and throughout this great land of ours, men and women who have been given up as utterly hopeless by friends and family, physicians, and clergymen, and employers, all tonight taking their places as members of society, contributing to the welfare of their fellow men. I am frequently asked by those 
to attend the meetings where I am honored to speak about some of the personal experiences that I had while drinking. I could tell them by the yarn, just as most of you could. I happen to be afflicted with one of the side diseases of alcoholism. I don't know whether any of you ever was afflicted in this way or not. I hope you will not get uneasy. I'm not going to give away any of the secrets of the order so that uh, the other member of your family will find out about it. But the idea that it was guilty of suffering from one of the side diseases, in fact several, other than just plain alcoholism. Now it may be the person here tonight that ever suffered this one. But I was afflicted with telephone idea. <laughs> I love the telephone. And long distance. The longer the distance, the more I love it. And to call up somebody at two o'clock in the morning was the finest time in the world to carry on a conversation or settle a very profound issue. One day I walked into a, the First National Bank in the city of Chicago, was met by a guard who said, who do we see? Fortunately, my eye fell on a nameplate behind the railing, and I said, Mr. So-and-so. He said, have a seat, you'll be at leisure in a few minutes. When I was ushered into that bank official's presence, I sat there and talked with him some 30 minutes about how to invest a surplus $10,000 that I had, and didn't know exactly what to do with under the circumstances. When between me and starvation, I had exactly one thin dime and a nickel. <laughs> Somewhere in the recovery program of Alcoholics Anonymous, unless I am greatly mistaken, I read the phrase, Restore us to sanity. <laughs> I even come across alcoholics who resented that phrase. And who said, Me? Me crazy? Me what? Well, the only way I could explain a person who would do a thing like that is to say he's as nutty as a fruitcake. <laughs> During the time that uh, I was drinking in New York, I was carrying on my work as a clergyman and doing pretty well. I preached some very fine sermons half drunk. Of course, I couldn't remember them afterwards. I doubt if anybody else could see I'm asked to tell, and I'm going to ask again tonight to tell about the experience that I had one day at a funeral. That was just a little bit embarrassing. <laughs> Getting up in the morning and finding it was one of these rather wet and dismal days, there is a faint possibility, I wouldn't be sure in my own mind, but there is a faint possibility that I did take just a little more of my tonic than the doctor described. You know, just to fortify myself against the weather, and being susceptible to colds anyhow, it, it, it was a good thing to do. Taking it additionally, you understand. So I went to the funeral and got by beautifully, and then we came to the graveyard. Did you people know that that artificial grass around the grave is slick? <laughs> now, that's especially true on one of these days when the rain doesn't fall hard, but just oozes. <laughs> and stands in great globules on each individual blade of artificial grass. 
by some unaccountable reason, I got just a little bit too close to the grave. My feet flew out from under me, and I went into the grave with a corpse. <laughs> I shall never forget that long, tall, cadaverous-looking funeral director, reaching down into the grave and putting his hands under my armpit and pulling me out and whispering in my ear, Dr. Bell. <laughs> Oh, no, funny. <laughs> there are some tragic things that have no mark in them at all. I'll never forget the first Christmas. I mean, the last Christmas that I was drunk. Francis was working in a candy store. I had a little job. I could buy resources for less than $30 a week. It was Christmas Eve, and I'd gotten my check. I called her on the phone. Anything you want me to get? Yes. A few items for the kitchen, a few items for Christmas. Then she said to me what every alcoholic wife has said to him a thousand times. Honey, this is Christmas Eve. Please don't get drunk. I said, I won't. And I met it. And she said, please meet the car tonight. I'm going to have to work until after midnight. Don't make me walk those two dark blocks Christmas morning alone. I said, I'll be there without fail. So I started out to make the purchases. And cashed my check. Then my place fell ahead of me. Hey, Sam, Tom and Jerry. Nope, can't do it. Come on, Tom and Jerry. Well, you know how it is at Christmas. So I went in and said hello to Tom and howdy to Jerry. <laughs> Came right on out and went down the street a little further. Another friend said, Hey, Sam. Nope, can't do it. And then Tom and Jerry. I don't know how they got down there ahead of me. <laughs> No, Candor, come on. Well, you know, you don't want to hurt feelings, you know how it is. So I went in again and said hello to Tom. How did the Jerry? You know the inevitable. It's now past midnight, early Christmas morning. The alcoholic is stretched out on the divan in the little living room, dead to the world. She rattles in the door, the wife comes in, the big bag in his arms. Tucked under one arm a tiny Christmas tree, the quarter had dug out of a garbage can. The alcoholic comes to, realizes what's happened, immediately passes out again, he can't take it. When he comes to again, it's very early Christmas morning. The first long fingers of dawn are reaching out across Lake Michigan to touch the cheek of Chicago and bid it waken to the day of a Savior's birth. The little Christmas tree had been decorated there on the table. On either side of it was a Bayberry candle burning. From the little radio over in the corner. That was wafted on the early Christmas morning air, the most beautiful of all the Christmas carols. Silent night, holy night. You may not think that an alcoholic suffers my non-alcoholic friend, and I can tell you of one who suffered the torments of hell that Christmas morning. Now for the other side of the picture in just a word, I am frequently asked by those who hear the story of mine, how is it that you, a clergyman, would find the answer to your problem not in the church but outside of the church. I always hasten to assure any such that it is no reflection 
on the church. The church 20 years ago knew practically nothing about alcoholism. Since then, there has been a great change. And today, the most loyal and devoted supporters that AA has anywhere are the clergymen, the priests, the rabbis, of all the faiths known to us. We work hand in hand with us in the rehabilitation of the alcohol. No longer is he considered a bum. No longer is he considered an individual who should be treated as an outcast, but rather as a sick person. I hasten to assure any such that I have learned also a great deal about alcoholism myself, but I didn't know that. For instance, broadly speaking, we have learned that there are two types of people who use beverage alcohol. One is known as the normal drinker, the man or woman who can take a drink or leave it alone. The man who drinks a bottle of beer with his lunch, has a highball at the close of the day. He may even go out to a party and drink too much. If I might come to your house and eat too much of something of which I was fond, but he's always in control of the situation. The other type of person is what we call the abnormal drinker, the man or the woman who let them take one drop of anything containing beverage alcohol will not stop until he gets drunk. That drunk may last a few days, a few weeks, a few months. After the first few drinks, he gets no pleasure out of it whatsoever. But instead, he gets the most brain-paralyzing, nerve-shattering, stomach-upsetting, personality-changing reaction that a human being can get and continue to live. Well, you say, why does he take the drink then in the first place? To which we reply, we do not know. That's the sixty-four dollar question. Maybe it's something. something up here makes the alcoholic drink, and instead of getting a pleasant reaction to it, he gets the most devastating reaction. Trouble with it, an allergy, nervously and personally. That is the most devastating experience that a human being I barely believe can endure in its worst stages, known to money. We have learned also that this disease, recognized today by the United States Public Health Service as a disease and the fourth major health problem in America, that there is no cure for it. That the medical science we own incalculable debt of gratitude for the development of serums and antitoxins that can immunize us against disease. But up to the present time, there is no known cure for alcoholism. You're just as familiar as I am with the experimentation that has been going on with certain drugs. That is entirely out of my province to discuss here tonight. And where perhaps some help has been obtained. But so far as any cure is concerned, we know that up to the present time there is no known cure. We know also that every alcoholic is first of all a new alcoholic. That the drinking is not the disease, but is evidence of a deeper line cause. But while every alcoholic is a new alcoholic, every new alcoholic is not an alcoholic. But every alcoholic is a coward that is dominated by an overwhelming sense of fear. I work out a little acrostic like this with the word, F-E-A-R, in this way, as applied to the alcoholic. 
The infant here with an alcoholic represents his frustration. Every alcoholic is an idealist. He's a perfectionist. He's a dreamer. Nothing but the best will do. And when he is then disappointed and frustrated often enough, then he has to go out and get drunk in order to drown his frustration. The appeal of an alcoholic represents his ego. Every alcoholic is an egomaniac. Me, me, my life, my car, my job, my money, my liquor. Poor me. You don't understand me. You don't know how much I need to drink. Poor me. Well, when he can't stand speaking me any longer, he goes out and gets drunk to get away from me. The appeal of an alcoholic represents his anger or anxiety. Perhaps he has been frustrated often enough, lives with his ego long enough. Then he gets angry about it, and anger is always followed by anxiety or worry. The all of fear with an alcoholic represents his resentment. He's a bundle of resentment. He resents you. He resents me. He resents God. He resents society. He resents himself. He resents rules. He resents regulation. He just resents, period. And when he can't stand his resentment any longer, then he goes out and gets drunk to get away from his resentment. What can we do about it? Fear can be changed. The effort of his frustration can be transformed by faith. Faith in God, faith in himself, faith in his fellow man. The he of his egomaniac can be transformed into endeavor. He could try to do something about it. The he of his anger and anxiety can be transformed into accomplishment. For if he has faith and he sincerely endeavors, he will accomplish. And the all of his resentments can be transformed into what I have chosen to call repose which is but another word for serenity, poise, equilibrium, calm. How can it be brought about? Religion has not been very successful. The psychiatrist has not been very successful. It remains rather for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, which has drawn on psychiatry and medicine and religion and our own personal experiences to work out a recovery program that has seen miracles take place in the lives of men and women during the past 20 years. Men and women who are hopelessly sunk in the thraldom of alcoholism. Men and women who have been given up as hopeless today, just as those of you sitting here in this great audience tonight, happy, smiling, successful, where only a few years ago, many of us were down in the very dregs of human society. How has it been brought about? How has it been accomplished? Well, we have found that it has been accomplished one day at a time, 24 hours a day. The alcoholic mind works like this. We sit down and we worry about the past. When we've exhausted that, we start in and worry about the future. How about the present? Oh, the hell of the present. Let's have a drink and forget about it. A.A. turns that around and says, yesterday's gone. There's very little you can do about it. Pull down the curtain. Tomorrow never comes. When tomorrow comes, it's today. Therefore, if you take care of today, you never have to worry about yesterday nor tomorrow. I've shut the door on yesterday, its sorrows and mistakes. I've walked within its gloomy walls, past failures and heartaches. Now I throw away the key and seek a brighter room and furnish it with hopes and smiles in every springtime bloom. No thoughts shall enter this abode that have a hint of pain 
And now his hatred and distrust shall never enter its game. I've shut the door on yesterday and thrown the key away. Tomorrow has no fears for me, since I have found today. The AA program of recovery that we call the 12 Step comes to the alcoholic as a ladder. Now every ladder has two uprights, and between the uprights are rungs of steps. So this AA ladder. One of the uprights of the AA ladder is a group of men and women, every one of whom have been utterly and completely defeated through the use of beverage alcohol. The other upright is what we call in AA a power greater than ourselves that can do for us what we've never been able to do alone. But sooner or later, most of us come to believe is God. Therefore, with this human help on one side and this divine help on the other, twelve practical things that if we will do them, we believe will lead to the attainment of sobriety and the maintenance of sobriety. And the reason we say that is because we've tried it and out of our own experiences, we know that it works. I've been somewhat amused in talking with a great many AAs from time to time about their concept of the 12 steps. I've had them say, well, I've got the first step. If I never get anything but the first step, I'm on my way. Another said, well, I've centered my interest on the 12th step. And I do a great deal of 12 step work. I don't worry about the rest of the program at all. And someone else says the third step or the fourth step or the fifth or so on. And you know, it's just a little bit amusing to me. The AA program, and the man who is more responsible for writing it than anybody else is here tonight, and he can correct me if I'm wrong. The AA program is not a set of rules handed down by a Moses to people wandering into wilderness that must be obeyed letter for letter. not a set of rules and regulations, but rather is it a way of life that results in sobriety. Sobriety is the beginning, but in my humble opinion, the alcoholic who merely gets sobriety and stops there has entirely missed the boat. Not that any of us attain perfection or that we ever understand it or can accept it and appreciate it in all of its component parts and its entirety because we are human beings with limited intelligence, limited capabilities. But by the grace of God, we can accept it as a way of life and prove first to ourselves, to our fellow man, and to our God, however we may conceive of him, the lost can be found, that the prodigal can come home. You may not believe it, but I had a very thorough course in public speaking when I was a lad. The teacher was a very beautiful woman. I never forget. 
She had the prettiest black hair I ever saw. Eyes that shone like stars. Lips, oh boy. <laughs> Cheeks, why they had the Georgia peach beat a mile. She was one. And a figure wasn't so bad either. When I started taking public speaking from her, she taught me that I was to stand with my left foot, the hollow of my right foot, I mean my heel of my right foot in the hollow of my left foot. My hands down at my side, never put your hands behind you, never put them in your pocket like I do constantly, never run your hands through your hair like that, and this meant so-and-so, and this meant so-and-so, this meant, I'm sorry, this meant come on, this meant get away, and Oh, you know, all the do battles of public speaking. And uh, she said, now you must learn these things and to use them without revealing the fact that you're using them. Well, I use them to a certain extent, but I have to put myself into what I say. I have to do it in my way, not exactly the way she told me. And then she said to me, she said, now, in speaking you must learn not to speak from up here. But she said you must learn to throw your voice out by using your diaphragm, speaking from down here, way down here. And she said if you speak from up here, you'll soon fire out. But if you speak from your diaphragm, you can go on indefinitely. You know, my congregation could kill that woman. <laughs> now she said that uh, you must learn to use your diaphragm. Now, of course, my diaphragm was as big then as it is now. But now she said, uh, say oh. And she put her hands over on my diaphragm, and I said, ah. She said, no, say it down here, ah, like that. I said, ah. She said, you don't understand what I mean. She said, now you put your hands on my diaphragm. <laughs> so I put my hands on her diaphragm, and she said, ah, lay down deep. And she said, ah, lay down deep. Now she said, do you get the idea? I said, I get ideas. I don't know whether you're going to What I'm driving at and trying to get across to you is this. The mechanics, the mechanics of an artist mustn't show. The framework of the building doesn't show. The steel girders are covered. The mechanics of a pianist or an organist or a violinist, the mechanics don't show. It's a result that shows. The 12 steps, as I understand them, are the framework, the steelwork, and until the Twelve steps are incarnate in human personality until the twelve steps are closed by a man or a woman. There are just so many words and powerless to help the alcoholic. But when they are clothed by a human personality, they become a living and breathing soul. A sober, living, and breathing soul. 
I used to apologize sometimes about the spiritual NAA for fear that some alcoholic would think I was preaching, but I've gotten over that long ago. I've gotten over it for this reason. The greatest physician who ever lived, the greatest psychiatrist who ever walked among men, was Jesus of Galilee. One night he was a guest in a cottage. There came a knock at the door. Standing without was a man, one of the leading citizens of the community, a member of the Sanhedrin, a man well-educated and cultured and refined. He said, I want to see the great physician. When he stood in his presence, the great physician looked at him and said, You, you of all men, come to see me. The carpenter's son? He said, yes. He said, what can I do for you? He said, I'm all confused. I'm lost. I can't find my way in the dark. And the great physician looked at him. And I'm sure there was a smile on his face. And he said to him, my friend, you're headed in the wrong direction. He said, I don't know what you mean. He said, something's got to happen to you on the inside. He said, I don't know what you mean. He says, you've got to be born again. He said, that sounds crazy to me. How could a man be born when he was old? Can he enter the second time in his mother's womb and be born? And the great physician looked at him and said, you don't get it at all. You've got to have something happen on the inside of you. The change is your entire outlook. Well, he said, I don't understand it. And then the great physician turned around and he said, Listen, my friend, tell me what you hear. And listening, they heard the laughter of the village prodigals yonder in the village tavern. Listening, they heard the bark of a dog yonder in the village street. Listening, they heard the cry of a night bird as it winged its way yonder to the distant hill. Then above it all, they heard the whistling of the wind around the corners of the house. The great physician said, What do you hear, my friend? He said, I hear the wind. He said, Where does it come from? I don't know. But he said, Where is it going to? He said, I don't know. Well, said the great physician, that's what everybody says. Who one day finds a source of power coming to them, they may not know from whence it comes, nor where it goes. But one day they realize that they're able to do something that they've never been able to do before because they have health. Might then I make a suggestion. The camel at the close of day kneels down upon the sandy plain to have his burden lifted off and rest again. My soul, thou too, should to thy knees when daylight draws to a close. Let thy guide remove the load and grant repose. Else how couldst thou tomorrow face with all tomorrow's work to do without thy burden all night 
his character. The cow kneels at break of day to have his diary places made, and rises up anew to take the desert road. Thou too should kneel at morning's break, that God may give thee daily care, assured that he, no load too great, will make thee bear. But all that I have said, and all the inspiration that you shall receive during the next two days, from the magnificent array of speakers who will be addressing you, will be but so much sounding brass or clanging cymbal, unless you take, as all of us who are alcoholics have had to take, the message home to our own individual lives. For that reason, I have called my remarks tonight, The Man in the Glass, and you'll get a copy of it before you leave. When you get what you want in your struggle for self, and the world makes you king for a day, just go to a mirror and look at yourself and see what that man has to say. For it isn't your father or mother or wife whose judgment upon you must pass. The fellow whose verdict counts most in your life is the one staring back from the glass. Some people may think you're a straight-shooting chump and call you a wonderful guy. But the man in the glass says you're only a bum if you can't look him straight in the eye. He's the fellow to please. Never mind all the rest. For he's with you clear up to the end. And you've passed your most dangerous, difficult test if the man in the glass is your friend. You may fool the whole world down the pathway of life and get pets on your back as you pass. But your final reward will be heartache and tears if you've cheated the man in the glass. Thank <laughs> you.